and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Yavamot, daf Kuf Yotet, page 119. Well, we are actually here. We're starting the last parak of Yavamot. It's about a four daf uh, parak. Uh, please remember to sign up for our CM, which will be in about a week. Uh, you can find the link for the sign up on our Facebook page, in our WhatsApp group. Um, or email talkingtalmud at gmail.com, and we can send you that information. Uh, and we look forward uh, to finishing up this challenging masachet with all of you. So I'm going to start with the first Mishnah of this last parak, um, which reads as follows. So let's say we have a woman who travels, uh, whose husband and the other co-wife travel to, you know, overseas. And then people come back and say to her, your husband died, right? She um, uh, she is not allowed to remarry anybody else. Because the question is, uh, does she actually have to do yibum? Um, and, and that's the question that they're dealing with, with here. And basically, she cannot enter into a yibum marriage until they know whether or not the rival wife, the co-wife, was pregnant. So what the issue here is, is that the husband died. There's another co-wife. And the question is, could the co-wife be pregnant and then have a child? And then Yibum wouldn't actually apply. So this woman is basically left in this state of limbo. And that's a lot of what this chapter is going to, you know, sort of discuss is sort of what are some of the limitations of testimony um, and trying to get a woman to be able to remarry, but you sort of have this issue of Yibum looming as well. If she had a mother-in-law who was overseas, right, but her husband had, you know, no brothers, she does not need to be worried that maybe a brother was born to her husband. So in other words, if her brother died and he had no brothers, and let's say she had a mother-in-law who lived far away, we're not obligated to find out whether or not that mother-in-law actually had another child that she was not aware of, um, and uh, she would be obligated in Yibum. Yatstam Nalea, right? But if her mother-in-law left town, right, left whatever city they were in, uh, pregnant, then we actually have to be worried. So a lot of what's going on here is it's sort of like, what assumptions can we make, uh, you know, for whether or not maybe a change in the family status happened? And basically, if there was no evidence prior, we don't need to worry about it. But if the mother-in-law left pregnant and then her husband died, then we're obligated to find out. Rabbi Yeshua says, nope, we don't even worry about that. Um, now, the Gemara gets into an interesting discussion here, which I just, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but basically it's an issue of majority. Um, and so it Right. So what we're talking about here is that it, it, we learned in the mission that she can't marry any other man and she also can't go into Yibam. The Gemara basically says, OK, we under. The, the co-wife was actually pregnant. Right. And if she basically married the brother, she would have actually done a, a, a Torah prohibition of marriage. wife. But the question is, why can't she marry 
another man, right? We go after the majority of women. Most women, the majority of women are going to get pregnant. And so the assumption could be that rival wife was probably pregnant and had a baby. And that's just the assumption that we can make. And so therefore, why don't we just allow her to marry? In other words, just make an assumption Yibum was not actually needed. And I think it's fascinating that the parak ends with this because we started Yibumos with sort of this idea that Chazal doesn't like um, doesn't like Yibum. And now we're ending with sort of saying like, yeah, Yibum wasn't really that common because especially in a society with polygamy, yeah, the assumption is somebody there got pregnant, right? And, and that should be the assumption. So then it goes on to say, Lema Rabbi Meir, And so the question here is, is that maybe this Mishnah follows the opinion of Rabbi Meir, who's more concerned about the minority, that the minority of women do not give birth, right? And not the majority. And then it goes on to say, Even if you want to say this Mishnah is like the rabbis, The rabbis usually follow the majority. Ruba de Eta Kaman, right? Um, at, right, that they always want to see the uh, uh, the evident majority. And they give two examples. One is the example of let's say you have 10 shops and nine of them sell kosher meat and you find a piece of meat outside, you can assume that that meat is kosher because there's a majority in, in front of you. And, you know, why would we assume that piece of meat came from? the one, you know, smaller, the one store that wasn't kosher, the Sanhedrin, we always follow the majority in the Sanhedrin of Aruba de Lesa Kaman, right? But maybe we're dealing here with a non-evident majority. In other words, we have no proof of the majority here, right? Like, in other words, it's a statistical majority, but we don't have proof to actually say, like, when you have 10 stores in front of you and only one is not kosher, that's like an evident majority. La Azlan Rabbanan Bataruba. In that case, the rabbis don't follow the majority. So the Gemara is going to continue with this discussion. I'm not going to read any more, but I think this is a it's fascinating to see sort of what assumptions do they need to hold by to try to figure out these uh these halachot. We we saw this before in the previous chapter with sort of assumptions made about women wanting to be married, staying in marriages, when would they want to get out of a marriage? And here we have these assumptions about what do we do with sort of the assumption of most women, right, in the confines of marriage with regular sexual relations are going to get pregnant. Um, And how does that impact our understanding of whether or not we obligate a woman that maybe there's a concern that Yibam actually needs to take place when we can't actually figure out what happened with the co-wife? So, uh, again, I, I sort of like this idea of like today we have technology. It would be very unusual to not be able to find somebody or find out what happened to them. And here we're basically seeing what happens in a world where there isn't the same type of communication that we have. How do they try to figure these things out with the evidence or the lack of evidence that's given to them? Um, Yeah, I wonder. I have the feeling that part of the issue nowadays is that um, if you want to not be found, you have to work really hard at it. I think you could do it if that was your intent, right? If the if somebody wanted to disappear, go off the grid, whatever, I think they could be successful at it. And I think that the law stays in place, you know, for that need. Um, and I, but I agree that for the most people would, I don't know, people would be checking their social media accounts from wherever they are. It'd right. be pretty and, easy to track them. 
Right. And and I think at the times of the Gemara, which, you know, it's obvious, like, I think people went missing all the time. Like, this wasn't an uncommon occurrence that somebody traveled, you didn't hear from them, they didn't come back. Th- these types of things happened. And this is how you found things right. out. Somebody would travel back and be like, so-and-so died, so-and-so had a baby, so-and-so got married. Exactly. Okay, I'm going to move us on to the next Mishnah. Um, it's towards the towards the end of Amadbet. Um, Shteyivamot, and it's a little bit of a complicated case. Shteyivamot. So, so we've got two Yivamot, meaning they are, these are the women who are married to two childless brothers, right? And the brothers have died. But what happens? Zo Omerit made Bali, Vizo Omerit made Bali, Zo Asurami Pnei Baalashal Zo, Vizo Asurami Pnei Baalashal Zo. Meaning each of the women's testimony is accepted for the fact that the brother, the husband has died, right? In terms of their own credibility, in terms of this particular statement. But because of that, you know, slim, slim, slim chance that the husband of the other one might be alive, right? Then they still can't, they can't end up with Yibum from, right? They can't, um, they're, they're not allowed to marry because they might actually need to have Yibum from the other one. Let me say this again, because it really is a complicated case, right? You have two women who are married to two brothers. The two brothers die childless. And but they're not present, right? They've died wherever. And the women's testimony, each wife, each widow's testimony is what is establishing the death of the brother. So that works for the woman who has died. I'm sorry, for the husband who has died, for the widow. The problem is that now you've got it, you've got the the potential for the brother, theoretically, for the brother of the man who has died, who happens to also be testified to be dead, but what if he's still alive and there's a zikat yibum from the sister-in-law to be have yibum with the brother of the man who has been accepted to be dead, right? And But it goes both ways. So neither of these women can really marry because they potentially have the zikat yibum because of the testimony, um, because the testimony works to free the widow, but not to say that there's no obligation of yibum for the man, even though he can't do it because he's not here. So it's, a li- it's again, complicated scenario here and a little bit troubling, I think. Um, especially keep in mind that those women that we talked about or those five relationships that we say, you, you can't accept the testimony of them about, you know, their, the, their um, where they might actually want to harm the sister-in-law, right? So that's, that's this, the sister-in-law. Like someone says, um, whatever. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to belabor the point. I'm just saying that there are reasons that we've already discussed that make their credibility not for the death of the husband, but the for the phenomenon of the husband being dead, also putting the brother-in-law to that. That's really it. Like, yes, your husband has died, but what do you mean your brother-in-law is also dead? And that's what's not quite accepted here, at least in terms of to, for the degree of saying you're free to marry somebody else. Because, of course, then always the concern is you marry somebody else, he turns up alive, now your children are mamzer, and we've talked about all that, all those cases. Okay. Um, what happens if one of the husbands has died with witnesses, meaning there are witnesses who come forward and say, we saw that he has died, and the other one does not have witnesses? Et she yeshlo edim asura, vet she ain la edim muteret. 
So the case is that um, the person has was witnesses, right? The one who has witnesses that the death took place is prohibited from marrying because there are no witnesses to the death of the Yavam. And the, and the reverse is true, right? The one who has no witnesses to her own husband's death, but there are witnesses to the death of the Yavam, is free to go. It does seem very unfair. Um, what happens if one of them actually has children? Now, this gets even more tricky, I think. Um, we have one who has children, one who has no children. Then, the one who has children is allowed to marry because she's she's accepted her statement is accepted with regard to her own husband's death and there's no issue of yibum because she has children meaning the husband fathered children and the one who has no children cannot marry why because the avam has not been the 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 death of the avam has not been ascertained uh with other testimony right so and she so she's still got this like Zikat Yibum, she's still waiting for the for the ostensibly dead brother because it doesn't there's no corroboration to say that in fact he's dead to let her go free, and that's why she's gonna still end up waiting. Okay. So now let's say there were other brothers, right? Well, it doesn't have to be that there's only two brothers, so you could have other Yivamim or potential Yivamim in the family. So then what happens? So these women have you um, have um, you know go through yibum with um, other brothers, and then the Yavamin die childless. And I think here we can say you know we're exploring all the options again. What would happen if again this would happen, where all of these people die without children? Asurotli say then they are prohibited from marrying, and there's a concern that the original Yavam who ostensibly died, but what if he's still alive, might still be around. But Rebbe Lezer says, no, no, no. The moment you say that they can marry the other brothers as Yivamim, then you're really fundamental. In the absence of those Yivamim, they could they could marry anybody. right? They could go free. So, and at the end of the day, that does seem to be the position. Um, uh, the Gemara here is very, very brief, and it goes on to the next, you know, the next daf, and we'll talk about it tomorrow. But I would say that in our loose ends tie-up, you know, the cases become even more complicated to make sure that all of those bases are covered, that they've been discussed. Well, they basically created a case. I mean, not created. It's a case where basically like in one context, the testimony is believed. In another context, the testimony is not believed. And so, you know, then how does that actually play out when both of those testimonies, you know, sort of when one statement uh, could be used as a testimony in a variety of different situations or a variety of different relationships. And and I would say the other thing that is, I think even maybe kind of neat to notice here is that we're pulled, pulling all the building blocks that we've learned throughout this masachet to, to make sure that we understand this case, right? We understand what the co-wives are. We understand if there were, right? That This happens not to be co-wives, but we understand the Yibum case. We understand the Edu case, the brothers who have died, you know, elsewhere. And then we're relying on the testimony from just the one. But what if there are witnesses? Da, da, da. Meaning, again, there's so many different movable parts for this particular case. But I feel like 
if we had just seen this case at the beginning of Yevamot, we wouldn't even know the vocabulary. And here, for all that this Masachet has been challenging, I think everybody can say, uh-huh, but we get it. I mean, it still, it still maybe needs a chart to really figure out what's supposed to happen. But in terms of the concepts, they're there. A hundred percent. And the last thing I would say is from a literary point of view and whether or not I could say the Mishnah has an internal structure that's, you know, a, a, an academic discussion. But I love the idea that the opening parak starts off with co-wives and the last parak ends with co-wives as well. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the DAP and the beginning of our last study or parak of Yavamot. Uh, on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.